Computer, initialize Holosuite. everybody and it's the random trek review podcast where we will analyze discuss and review randomly selected star trek episodes with you is uh matt yours truly and uh joining me uh live from the picket line is my good friend andrew and uh andrew i hope you got yourself a nice warm cup of coffee and some fresh donuts out there because i know it can get uh, a little frosty out in the picket lines so uh, how are you doing yeah matt you're you're stumbling a little bit i think that my demands have maybe kind of rattled you a little bit uh you don't know how much longer <laughs> you can hold off and uh you know keep the doors shuttered if uh if you, if you don't cra- get cracked here so um yeah i i've kind of pulled out my jimmy hoffa union playbook and uh you know i'm looking for less hours uh more overtime more vacation and well, I heard that uh, the fact that I'm not letting you use the bathroom is uh, cramping your solidarity. <laughs> yeah, that, that can do that. It can kill that, right? That's it. I'm going back on strike. <laughs> it's a walkout. Oh, God. Yeah, we are talking about, of course, Bar Association. And I guess, I mean, it's probably fitting that uh, we kind of go back and recall what you had said back uh Two weeks ago, uh, we're looking for a score out of five tooth sharpeners. Uh, and uh, I just I jotted down some stuff here when you had gone through it. You had said that Rom had gotten an ear infection and that he wouldn't be able to take time off of work. Um, you'd also say that O'Brien mentions that he should maybe make a union with the other bar people. So I think it was actually Bashir who told him to make the union, not O'Brien, but that's fine. Uh, you had talked about the FCA coming in and Brunt was going to try to basically bust up the union. You said that, uh, Quark was obviously going to be, you know, upset and, and, and discouraged throughout the whole thing. But then I think that you also did mention that he eventually kind of caves and, uh, eventually gives in to the demands. Um, I feel like I'm being a little bit harsh here, but unfortunately, I, I kind of feel like there was a bunch of other side plotty kind of things in here. So I'm going to give you four tooth sharpenings out of five. Uh, you made the little slip up with O'Brien there. I feel like, uh, you know, I, I probably could be persuaded to go five out of five, but um, I think four out of five is a pretty solid one. It's- so, yeah, we will be discussing Bar Association. Uh, it is from Star Trek Deep Space Nine season four, episode 15, which is almost exactly one season backwards from where we were in the last podcast. It originally aired on February 19th, 1996. And I think the last pod episode we reviewed was like February 17th, 97. So, yeah, we're like exactly one year. Uh, guest stars, Max Grodenchik as Rom, Chase Masterson as Lita, James Marsden as Grimp, Emilio Borelli as Fruel, and Jeffrey Coombs as Brunt. It was written by Ira Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf, also uh, the same as our last episode that we reviewed, uh, based on a story by Barbara J. Lee and Jennifer A. Lee, and it was directed by LeVar Burton, which uh, definitely caught my eye as I was watching this. 
Uh, just in case you didn't get a chance to, uh, to watch, I'll give you a quick synopsis. It's time for the Bajoran cleansing ritual. Unfortunately, that means business at Quark's is slow. Rom collapses due to an out-of-control ear infection that he was unable to address because he is not allowed to leave work. Quark then announces cuts to the employee wages due to slow the slowdown, prompting Rom to form a union with his fellow employees. Meanwhile, after returning home from a sparring session with Dax, Worf catches a burglar who had just robbed his quarters, much to his chagrin. Rom's co-workers are horrified by the idea of forming a union, but urged on by O'Brien and Bashir, Rom presses on. He convinces his co-workers to confront Quark, who thinks it is a joke, but after Quark laughs at their demands, they walk out and go on strike. The strike leaves Quark's even more dead as very few patrons cross the picket line. O'Brien, Bashir, and Worf get into a brawl, prompting Sisko to blackmail Quark into settling the labor dispute. Quark tries to bribe him, but Rom stands firm and refuses. A meeting with the Union is interrupted by FCA agent Brunt, who threatens to ruin any Ferengi who continues with the Union unless they end the strike immediately. Rom refuses to dissolve the Union, and Quark meets with him to warn him of what Brunt might do. Sure enough, Brunt releases his Nausicaan enforcers on Quark to send Rom a message. Worf decides he will never be able to adjust to life on the station and decides to move his quarters to the Defiant where it is nice and quiet. Rom visits Quark who is given a severe beating by Brunt's goons. Quark agrees to quietly give in to Rom's demands if he officially dissolves the Union. Rom agrees and as the Bajoran cleansing ritual comes to a close, Rom surprises everyone by entering the bar in a Bajoran technician's uniform and demanding that Quark get him a drink. This story uh, has a bit of an interesting beginning. It was uh, pitched by a couple of, uh, a pair of sisters, Barbara and Jennifer Lee, and they have no other writing credits. I looked them both up on IMDb, and uh, one of them, I believe Barbara, has, has one acting credit from like last year, and that's it for both of them. So I wonder if they're, and we've talked about this a couple times, actually. Uh, do you think maybe they could have been like fans that just sort of came, had this idea that they that they pitched? Maybe, but I feel like it's also oddly specific, this episode, about the unions and uh, fighting against, you know, corporate quark and everything. It's also, I mean, it's definitely a one-off. One of the things I noticed right off the bat is that it opens up with Jedzia and she's like, looks like there's no Jem'Hadars on the radar, which essentially is like the reset button for the episode, right? Where it's like, okay, this is just going to be a standalone. It's not going to be tied into uh, any of the, of the you know, the Jem'Hadar stuff, the Dominion stuff. And so it definitely is a standalone episode, which means that it very well could have been th written in by fans. Uh, and maybe it's one of those things where they get the credit because they had the idea maybe they're just somebody kicking around hollywood and they they've been there forever yeah it was it was very it was very interesting to read that you know they they basically pitched this story and that was it never heard from again until you know one maybe just they just stumbled onto a set at the wrong time and then they ended up having to credit them or whatever <laughs> Who knows? I mean, that's probably better than nowadays where they probably just steal it straight up and not even give credit. So now the other interesting thing that I sort of re read about the, the sort of initial story here was that it was actually like when the producers bought it, like they did actually buy the story. 
they looked they thought it would be a like sort of a b plot to an, another episode and you know i guess when they sort of tried to put it in there as like sort of something happening on the side and in the background they realized that like it was it was just a bit too much that you know it had to have its own its own episode that you couldn't really do a you know a sort of labor disputes and also you know sort of rom versus quark brother versus brother story as a B plot, which um, I, I thought A was the right thing to do because I, I think it would have been a pretty, it wouldn't have done it justice. And I, I think it was kind of interesting that they initially saw it as a B story. It kind of still feels like it in a way because one of the things that was really surprising to me throughout the episode was just how much time was uh, designated for the wharf stuff getting integrated. I didn't actually look, but I'm assuming that this is, it must be really close to when he was just introduced onto the show. Uh, so I feel like, yeah, there's a lot of other characters doing things. And I mean, to be honest with you, there was kind of a little bit of me that was saying like, let's get back to that whole union dispute. Uh, Cause I think it's probably the most interesting part of the episode. Well, at this point, Worf would have been around for like maybe six months. Cause it's halfway through the season and he joined the, the cast in at the beginning of season four. So he was still kind yeah, he was still kind of getting used to being on the station versus the Enterprise, which he was used to. So, yeah, it, yeah, it, it does kind of make sense that uh, he's still kind of finding his way around. But you're right that it was kind of uh, the union stuff was much more compelling. And uh, oh, definitely. Yeah, it uh, it was kind it was an, an OK B plot, I guess. But uh, the, the union stuff and the the the. the, the you know, conflict between Quark and Rom was was certainly much more interesting for me. Yeah, and I think we also get a lot more about the Ferengi kind of culture, and we learn some of the rules and laws and things that exist on the home planet, and I guess it applies to Ferengis living everywhere. So that aspect was kind of interesting, and I mean, we can kind of go through them as they come, but I mean... That is always what Deep Space Nine does best. And so if you're going to kind of make a Ferengi episode, then you might as well just give them the the bulk of the episode and maybe, you know, make it the whole thing. All right, let's jump right into it. There's not really much else as far as development goes that I could dig up. So let's just dive right into it here. So it starts uh, in Quarks and uh, the Bajoran cleansing ritual is is going on, which I, I sort of thought was kind of like Lent. Yeah, Bajoran Lent. Yeah, sort of gave the that sort of Lent kind of vibe. So, I mean, I guess it's kind of timely. I mean, that was maybe like, what, a month ago or so? Yep. So anyway, Quarks is totally dead. There's like hardly anyone in there. You know, do you think Bajorans are like so... Are they the kinds of people that would be make or break a, a bar? Yeah, it's hard, right? Because it's a Bajoran station, so you would assume that the majority of kind of workers would be Bajoran. And I guess... Quarks is kind of a place where everybody goes after their shift or after work. So that might mean that maybe people aren't meeting up as much, but it's also a like super important hub where other species are coming and going all the time as well. So I don't know that I necessarily buy it. I almost kind of wish maybe they had made like a, a perfect storm scenario, right? Where there was something happening in the region that meant that there was not a lot of people coming to the station and it was Bajoran Lent, and it was also something else. Like I feel like that maybe thrown in would have made it a little bit more 
believable, I guess. But in this episode, it's obviously not as important as the whole kind of union thing. I guess the other thing too, though, is is that uh, we're kind of meant to believe this is really just a short-term thing, and that's why Quark just doesn't lay everybody off, right? Because if it was something where like this perfect storm had had arisen, then he could just lay everybody off, and that'd be the end of it, right? So uh, it's kind of weird, though. Like Lita doesn't celebrate it, I guess, like because she's still working, I suppose. Maybe, maybe she's just not super religious. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> Uh, one thing about Lita that I kind of forgotten about was that I had completely forgotten about the Bashir-Lita relationship. Like, when uh, she kind of kisses him goodbye, where I was like, oh, yeah, that was like a big kind of uh, overarching storyline for quite a while. And the same thing with uh, Bashir and O'Brien with, like, the Viking costumes. I was like, oh, yeah, like, there's another one of their hollow sweet adventures that they do, which is kind of like a cool little thing. Yeah, I definitely noted that we get to see another one of Bashir and O'Brien's uh, signature Hollow Suite programs. This time, the the Viking uh, the Viking costumes. Yeah, I don't really know what that is. Like they said, it was kind of like Irish history or something, fighting off Vikings. But pretty cool, I guess. Yeah, those. It's always interesting when I, when we get to unearth another one of those. Um, so anyway, Grom is like, you know, struggling with something's definitely up with him. He's like sort of swaying around. He's like not paying attention. He's groaning and all this. And um, he ends up actually passing out. And there's this kind of interesting like effect where the sound's all distorted and his vision's all blurry and things are like spinning. And uh, I, I, I couldn't decide if it was like decent or if it was like super cheesy. What did you think of that whole like? sort of perspective of rom as he's like about to pass out um it's okay i guess have you ever been put under like sedation kind of thing yep yeah and i mean i feel like tv and movies do a pretty good job of like accurately depicting that feeling of just kind of like ooh, and then it just like fades to black this was kind of like the same idea but maybe with like a nauseous twist um, I feel like this is kind of the feeling you have. Like, if you ever gone on like a really super spinny roller coaster or something, and you come off and your head is kind of spinning, that was the feeling that I had. And I, if you kind of put the two together, the post roller coaster spinning head and the passing out from anesthetic head, then this is kind of what you get. So it was definitely believable. I thought. I thought that it was actually kind of cool. Okay. I, there was a couple of things that I. I didn't like about it. Um, th- they make this, this you know, this whole thing about how it's been bothering him for weeks on end, and uh, Quark won't let him go to the doctor. But I mean, couldn't he just go in his free time? I'm assuming there's a doctor on call, twenty four seven. So the it's like the idea that his work is is preventing him from going. It, I get it, right? It's the thing that precipitates the whole story, but it also doesn't make any sense because he's probably still only working you know, eight, 10 hours. Like if it was, if it was this bad, then he could just go at any other time. Well, you never know. Quirt there for Angie. Maybe he's working like 18 hour days. You never know. Yeah, I know. But see on a 26 hour shift, then you still have eight hours that you could go and do it anywhere else. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's something that you kind of, yeah, you think about it maybe after the fact, but because of the way the story is, it's, you don't really think about it in the moment. I don't think anyway. Yeah. It was just something that kind of, was like, especially because they keep mentioning it, right? Oh, it's been weeks, it's been weeks, it's been weeks. And then he's saying like, oh, you won't let me go, you won't let me go. I was thinking, well, just go after work, right? <laughs> like, 
That's the only thing I didn't like about it. Yeah, so then, so he ends up in the infirmary. Miraculously, Quark is kind enough to let him go. Um, and I, it was interesting that he, um, Rom was like able to recite his contract like word for word. And it said in there that he's not allowed to, to leave work. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And then there was a kind of cringy moment where he was um, talking about giving himself umox. And I was like, <laughs> oh, no, you're not going to go there. Come on. Yeah. Because you, oh, I don't want to even think about what that no. actually means. <laughs> no, I know. And the way that it was, the way that it was kind of set up and delivered, it was so unnecessary because... Uh, he's like, oh, maybe I've been giving myself the Umax too much, or maybe I've been getting too many Umax. And Lita's like, ooh, who's the lucky lady? Because they've established throughout the series and that it's, it's like very much like a sexual act, right? And then he's yes, like, sadly, I'm, he goes, sadly, I've been giving myself the Umax. And then her reaction is just like, uh, like cringe face. Yeah. And then that's it. It's just kind of dropped. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of weird things about this episode, actually. And that was definitely one of them. Like Rom, you know, having himself a wank in the Deep Space Nine is is definitely not something I thought that we would ever have to talk about. But I guess here we are. Yeah, it's uh, not something I would have expected uh, from from Star Trek, and it's something that I don't think I rem- like stuck out of my mind. And I think maybe that's because I don't want to think about it. <laughs> You're like Lita. You just did the cringe face and moved on. All right, so Rom, uh, is, you know, he gets treated in, in the infirmary and he heads back to Quark's and uh, as he arrives, there's like in the middle of a staff meeting. Now, did you notice that like Morn was just like still sitting at the bar while they're like having their, you know, business meeting? Yeah. I thought I noticed that. I thought it was pretty funny. I guess Morn is almost like family at that point. He must spend so much money or so much Latinum there that they they just don't even recognize that he's still sitting there. That must be it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, so Cork announces that he's going to, he has to cut everyone's salary. I think he said by one third because things were so slow and everyone's all up in arms. Oh, you can't do this to us, Quark. And, and this is sort of where the sort of initial seeds of the union are formed because everyone is so, you know, so upset with this. And, and you know, Quark is like, what am I supposed to do? Cut, you know, fire half of you or whatever? Uh, yeah, this is, this, so this is where the union stuff all gets uh, started. Uh, yeah, I also think it's kind of a good opportunity right now to kind of talk about how the Quark character is portrayed in this episode as way more cruel and cutthroat and heartless than we have seen him in the past. Uh, when Rom has got the ear problems at the beginning, there's a couple of lines that I don't know necessarily sit well, especially like when he collapses at the one point, they go, what are you going to do? And he says, I'm going to dock his pay or something to that effect. Right. And, uh, when Lita's talking about, you know, you know, she'd like to have, um, like some more free time or something like that. He's like, oh, you'll have more free time when you're unemployed. Like, He's so nasty in this. And this is another instance, too, where, you know, they're bringing up some legitimate concerns. And he obviously has concerns as well. But his his immediate go to is just to, like, you know, cut everybody's salary back so that he makes less. uh, So he makes the same amount of profits. Right. Which, I mean, we've all worked in jobs where that's that's the case. Right. Um, I think that, you know. If you've ever been laid off, it's such a frustrating thing to see all the higher ups kind of cruise out in their 
you know, SUVs and, and sports cars and things like that. But in this world, in this scenario, I almost feel like they kind of dialed Quark up a little bit in order to have a reason to push the union. I don't know that it wouldn't normally be that way. Um, I also felt like one of the things that's really bad about the episode is that they talk about the contracts that they're all under. You were just mentioning Rom knows it off by heart. And he says that it's a standard Ferengi contract that every single person in the Ferengi uh, government alliance, whatever you want to call it, follows. I mean, is that really the sign of a good business person? Is just a, like a, a you know an ironclad contract that has no uh, negotiations or anything? Like they always sell the Ferengi up as being such great business people, great negotiators. But if everybody's on this horrible contract, I kind of wonder like why would anybody do business with them? Yeah, that is true. I never really thought of that. As for like Quark being sort of um, dialed up as this sort of. Uh, ruthless businessman i mean they do do that occasionally when the story kind of asks for it yeah true it is you're you're right that it is pretty much dialed up to the highest that we see it in this episode because yeah he's got he's got some pretty like heartless lines like um you know after braun passes out he's like bro come clean up this mess yeah you know, and it's like his brother <laughs> right i mean we've seen situations where other people have been injured and that was not the way that he acted that's right, yeah, and and we we definitely see it sort of dialed up to the max, I think here. But it it does happen occasionally that they they need they need Quark for the purposes of the story to be this ruthless, heartless businessman, and so it does happen sometimes. And yeah, the the standard contract is kind of an odd thing, but I think part of I think what the theory is like if you're a Ferengi and you're at the bottom, obligated to to work this horrible contract until you've sort of been able to scheme your way into being right. the one offering the contract so i think that's sort of what they're thinking here but i mean there's non-ferengi people who are working there under that same contract it makes you wonder why you know this talk of union had never really been brought up beforehand and the, the ferengi wouldn't have like an ironclad kind of reversal to a union forming yeah it's true it's kind of it's kind of puzzling. Yeah, and I, and I mean I'm maybe digging more into this than what I'm supposed to be. Like the I, I realize <laughs> that the writers of the episode are like, don't you get it? Like Quark is capitalist uh, America, and Rom is like the you know steel workers of America. Like it's not supposed to be complicated. We're not supposed to be thinking about this in that way. We're just supposed to be like, oh, Quark is like uh, you know Wall Street. He's evil. We hate him. And Rom is like me, and we are cheering for him, and he's good, right? Like, that's essentially what the episode is boiling down to be. Yeah, pretty much. Now, just to get off sort of onto the B story, as we that we sort of talked about earlier. So Worf and, and Dax are, like, sort of cruising down the corridor after, you know, sparring. And uh, Worf, like, catches this guy, this, this burglar. He finds, like, his tooth sharpener, and it turns out that the guy, like, robbed his quarters, which... Seems like an odd choice to me. I feel like Mr. Worf might not have a whole lot of uh, items in his quarters that you'd want to steal. I guess maybe that big chair, the big chair with the balls on it. Yeah. <laughs> the, yes, the big the big Klingon chair. High demand item, apparently. Uh, but and then there's like a scene where he sort of drag, drags this guy by the collar into Odo's office and he's all you know he's all mad because this guy robbed his quarters and he sort of goes off on Odo about you know 
how there's all these security breaches and you know people are robbing people's quarters and blah and Odo like hilariously has like this laundry list of security breaches that took place <laughs> on the Enterprise. D. Wellworth was in charge, and he starts reading them out. Yeah, that was great. It was so good. It was so good. It's, it's such an Odo thing to do, you know. Have that list just like hanging around, and as soon as Mister Wharf decides to come and give me the business about station security. Yeah. I, yeah, no, he makes an excellent point, too, just about how, you know, on the Enterprise, it's all Federation people. Most of the time, if somebody comes, they're, you know, they're checked in at the transporter room or the shuttle bay. It's much, much, much easier being security chief on the flagship of the Federation than it is this station where you have all these kind of riffraff coming and going. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, he made a very good point. And I think, I think Worf, you know, kind of got it even though he was still pretty pissed that his quarters got broken into but i i thought that was such a funny scene it was such an odo thing to do so we move along to rom he decides to form a union and i think you you mentioned when uh, you were talking about my recall that like bashir sort of put the idea in his head right at the beginning when he was treating him and then he ends up going back later and there's the <laughs> there's to get further advice from Bash- from Bashir, and O'Brien happens to be in there, and uh, there was this. Uh, I I thought this scene was pretty funny too, because you know O'Brien apparently one of his ancestors was uh, a union man in the uh, what did he say like the the nineteen hundreds early nineteen hundreds like a coal miner I think, and he, you know and O'Brien's like going on about how great this this guy was and all the great things he did, and then he and then he says they like fished him out of the Allegheny River with, <laughs> yeah. uh, with 32 bullets in him. <laughs> like, way to, way to encourage the guy to start a union. Yeah, you might get shot 32 times. I mean, it is interesting. Star Trek people are always way better than you or I at remembering their ancestors. I guess maybe, like, uh, you know, that Ancestry.com or something must become really popular in the future, and everybody, like, has a... Has, has an ancestor like at the ready for any time that they ever need like an analogy or a euphemism of some sort. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, O'Brien especially, I feel like he references his ancestors fairly frequently. Like this is not the only time we've heard about, you know, another O'Brien. Oh, yeah, no, we hear about it all the time for sure. I feel like Janeway used to do that as well. Maybe it's like an Irish thing. I don't know. Yeah, it could be. Those Irish, they, they, know, their, uh, they know their roots. No, no doubt. So then... Uh, so. So Rom gathers everyone together and they end up forming this this union and he says, you know, if we if we band together and we go to Quark, you know, he'll have no choice. We you know, he can't he can't run the bar without us. And like Quark doesn't take any of it seriously. Like he they're all sort of gathered at the bar and he's like, "Guys, my birthday was last month. Like what are you doing?" <laughs> and and he like he laughs. Rom announces they've they formed the the Guild of Restaurant and Casino Employees. And yeah, Quark doesn't take any of it seriously at first until they actually uh, until they actually walk out. Yeah, I do love that union is basically like a dirty word. Like when they're when they're kind of discussing what they're going to do, like some of the other Frankie guys are like, you're not thinking about what I think you're going to be thinking about. And then when Quark comes in, he's like, sounds like you're maybe making a union. Like it's almost like they don't even want to say the word, uh, which I thought was really good uh, and very Ferengi. Well, yeah, it was like a curse word because uh, almost it seemed 
the, you know, the in the in the original meeting, like you're right, none of the Ferengi would even say the word. They're like, they're like, you you can't be serious. You're not talking about a uh 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 uh. And then I think someone else like even finished the sentence for him. It was, I mean, and if you think about Ferengi culture, they're all about exploitation and and capitalistic endeavors like you know it makes perfect sense that the the union is the the last thing that they would want and that it would be so ingrained in their culture that it's such a horrible evil terrible thing yeah and i mean i think that it's also mentioned multiple times that like this is something that is established that you are not to do if you try to do it you know the the government's going to come in and break it down crack it down they're going to you know, really look down on anybody that even talks about this, let alone actually does it. Now, there's one last sort of interesting thing that I kind of forgot about, but I just remembered now, is uh, Odo is, like, instructed by Captain Sisko not to, like, take, like, not to force them to uh, to let people in or, or to make them move away from, from Quarks, and I, I thought that was an interesting thing, but it's also a very human thing, I think sort of in contrast to the Ferengi for for Captain Sisko to be like, no, 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 let this play out. Don't interfere. Just let it work itself out. Yeah, it was kind of strange that Odo was anti-union because, I mean, I thought that he learned the, the error of his ways after working for the Cardassians and, and, you know, going around with the Iron Fist. And I know that he always talks about how he appreciates the simplicity of it, but... I thought that he had kind of grown a little bit more in terms of like, you know, human rights and, and, and that kind of thing. It's not surprising that Cisco would do this. And I do kind of like that they are going to allow people to use the bar, but they're going to use the, the top floor entrance or what have you, uh, because that is a, a, a typical uh, strike protocol, right? Is that uh, it's peaceful, but they're basically going to slow people down, give them the information, uh, just kind of create a little bit of a nuisance, I suppose, in exchange for that information kind of getting out there, right? So um, I thought that that part was really good. Actually, at this point of the episode, we're, we're kind of getting close to the halfway mark. I have to say that I'm really on board with this union corporate uh, storyline. Uh, I think the stuff with Worf is kind of interesting enough. And I'm, I'm at the halfway mark. I'm really, yeah, I'm really digging this episode. Uh, how about you, Matt? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, it's very, very uh, engaging. I, I think j- just to go back to Odo's sort of reaction, I don't think it was so much that he was like anti-union. I think it was more that he was just uneasy about having this Mob. group of people doing what they're doing. I think that was more his concern than that he was like anti-union. Yeah, he's more pro-order than he is anti-display. you know, display. That's a good, that's a very good way of putting it, yes. Now, you mentioned the second level entrance, and that sort of leads to this other kind of... It, it was kind of funny, but then it also led to something not so funny. But uh, O'Brien and Bashir are, like, standing there sort of across the way, and they're, like, as people are, like, approaching court, this, the entrance on the second level, they're, like, betting who's going to go in and who's not going to go in, which I thought was kind of funny. And then Worf walks over, and O'Brien's like, oh, he, there's no way he's going in. And then he just goes in for whatever reason. It isn't really explained. And then somehow they end up getting in a brawl because because Bashir's like, oh, he's going in. And O'Brien's like, we'll see about that. And he like runs over. And then like the next scene is 
them getting like dressed down by Cisco in a holding cell because they got into a brawl for some reason. I thought that was it was kind of odd that they never really explained what happened. Yeah, well, I mean, part of the reason why I said that I'm really enjoying it up to this halfway mark is because this whole brawl in Quarks or like this transition right before the commercial break is a little bit of a, you know, canary in the coal mine type scenario. This doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, I think that we're supposed to believe that Bashir and O'Brien believe that Worf is like a picket line crosser and that, you know, he's going to basically cross the picket line in order to go into the bar. So they're going to go in and like straighten him up. And then they didn't want to film a brawl between Worf, O'Brien and Bashir, which is probably the most interesting thing that they, they could film. Uh, and so they just do like this, you know, flash cut into the prison afterwards. And it's kind of played for like a little bit silly, but then Cisco's being serious um, this part is where I have to say, I'm like, uh, like, you know, when the record slides off the, the record player like that, <laughs> this kind of doesn't make any sense. I think that's what they were going for, but I think that it also just could be the, the first wheel of the train coming off the track. Yeah, I guess that is sort of the only thing that would make sense is that like O'Brien's like, oh, he's crossing the picket line. He can't do that. And then tried to stop him. Like, I didn't even think of that at the time but yeah that this sort of part of it was kind of odd but i will have to sort of make sense of that as we continue so this uh brawl leads us to this very uh un starfleet scene in uh, cisco's office where quark uh is summoned and cisco's all frustrated because his officers got into this huge fight over this strike that's going on and he basically blackmails Quark into uh, settling the dispute. He basically, you know, reads him the riot act and he's like, you know, you've been rent free for whatever, four years and adds up all, he basically hands him a, you know, hands him a bill for all the maintenance and rent, back rent and all this other stuff. And he says, get your, uh, you know, get this settled or uh, we're going to talk about this, this bill I'm showing you. And so, and then, and then Quark does the, a very Ferengi thing and goes and he tries to bribe Rom into, into settling it. So interesting contrast here. We have a Cisco doing something very non-Starfleet and Quark doing exactly what you would expect. Yeah. I mean, this for me anyway, what's the episode with, uh, remember with Eddington where Cisco starts shooting the, you know, the, the bio weapons into the Maquis things or pale moonlight we've seen cisco do worse than blackmail quark the other thing that's really strange about this is that you know quark is always getting up to all this tomfoolery all this chicanery and now we are told that actually the federation is the one paying the power bill the federation is paying the rent bill uh the federation is doing all the repairs for free this part of me is kind of like, wait, why are you doing that again? Like, I remember back in season one where they were trying to, you know, get people back to the station. And so they kind of coerced Quark. Uh, they needed to kind of massage him a little bit to stay there. But now, how many ever years later, it's kind of like, wait, why would you take any crap from Quark when this is the arrangement? And also, why would Quark ever complain about anything? Because 
anytime he does complain, wouldn't they just be like, oh, you know what? We're going to rent it out to somebody else because we're going to make more money that way. Well, yeah, for, for Cisco to mention rent, period, is kind of odd because are, are, is everyone paying rent? Yeah. Like, are all the people living there paying rent? Like, it's 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 a very kind of strange thing in and of itself just to mention that to Quark. Yeah, I mean, Quark trying to buy out Rom is also just, you know, that's the, the union busting scene, right? Where, you know, Quark's going to try to buy his way out. It's going to be cheaper to buy out Rom. The leader cut the head off and the body dies kind of idea. That was totally expected. Yeah, I didn't really take anything out of that other than just like, obviously, it was the next uh, progression. Uh, and like I mentioned, I'm starting to kind of feel like, what are they trying to tell us about unions and corporations? Because it started out so great uh, about, you know, uh, there's, you know, Cork is the evil corporate uh, bar owner and and he's really leaning on the employees and they're going to fight back and it's going to be, you know, this this big tension. And now it's kind of like we're at, we're past the halfway mark and I'm kind of waiting for like what the message is. What what are we supposed to take away from this? What is Star Trek's take on uh, unions and corporate America? I don't know that we're getting anything. Uh, I mean, the next thing that shows up is that Brunt is the... Ferengi enforcer, I guess now, or he's supposed to be some sort of like uh, auditor or tax man or what have you. And then he comes in and basically like he just does the same thing. Like he just shows up and he starts threatening everybody and he starts quoting the rules and stuff. And it's just like, ah, I don't know that we're really getting anything out of this. I, I, that's how I felt. What, what are you feeling about both of those things? They're trying to send a message but I mean, they have to do it like in a Star Trekian way. So I mean, it kind—I of, think it kind of loses it a bit because they're—they're trying to. Frankie is sort of like capitalism dialed up to eleven, and it's kind of hard to draw exact parallels because of that. Right. You know, in, in contemporary society, like who's who's the who's Brunt? You know. Yeah. Like you got you, you've got a corporation, you've got a union. Like who's the one that comes in and says, "I'm gonna crush the union just." through sheer weight, right? That, that, that doesn't really exist because they've dialed it up to 11. Like the Ferengi culture is, is capitalism dialed up to 11. They do have that sort of overarching authority whose sole purpose is to make sure everyone adheres to the rules of acquisition, which are, you know, let's take the worst aspects of capitalism and turn them up as far as we can go. Right. So it's kind of hard to, to take a message out of that because it's not exactly re perfect parallel of reality. I mean, I guess the argument that I would make would be that, like, in our culture, when a union and a corporation are at odds end, uh, they typically bring in like an arbiter to decide what the, the final outcome would be. Um, it might have been a maybe bit more interesting if the the arbiter comes in like let's say brunt comes in and he's gonna be he's gonna he's gonna act as the middleman between it and basically just kind of leeches both of them or something you know like that would be the ferengi arbitration process is that you both get screwed you know um something like that might be kind of interesting i almost just feel like they needed to do stuff in parallel with strikes and unions that people are aware of like this is what year? It's 1996. So, I mean, it's two years after 
the Major League Baseball player strike, which, I mean, you are a big baseball fan. You know that that was a massive uh, thing uh, in the uh, mid-90s. Baseball not uh, not finishing the World Series. I think it even ran a little bit into 95. It, it robbed the Expos of the World Series. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All us Canadian guys are still upset about it. It's like uh, 30 years ago. It ruined yeah. them. Ruined them. Yeah, sent them to Washington. But <laughs> don't you think that something that was like very much paralleling the things that we saw in like that would have been a much more interesting episode. Like this really falls flat, man. In the second half to me, it just kind of just goes into, you know, beat by beat, like paint by number. It it doesn't really try to say anything or do anything of interest. It's just like, Oh, and then the Frankie came in They're even more evil. And they're just going to like, basically, uh, threaten to beat them up, and that and that's basically all we get. Kind of a bit disappointing. Well, maybe the message is like you know we shouldn't be so uh, what's the word antagonistic towards unions. Maybe that's sort of what they're trying to say. Right. Maybe we shouldn't just try to crush them hamfistedly. Maybe we that's you know maybe we should pay attention when they have concerns and demands. I, I don't know. I mean that's sort of how, I guess that's one way you could take it. But yeah, Brunt. Uh, yeah, Brunt shows up and he's like, you know, if you don't shut this down, you guys are gonna be ruined. You're you're never gonna be able to practice business or conduct business with Ferengi again, and all this and that. And he's got his, you know, big tough Nausikans that we know are, uh, you know, people you don't want to screw around with. And um, so first, like, he went to Quark first, and he was like, he, him, and Quark had a, have a bit of a history. And he's like, well, don't worry, Quark. I'm here to help you. I'm gonna help you. You know, put out snuff out this union um now this leads to a really sort of major scene between quark and rom where i think rom goes to quark's quarters and quark is like begging him like dude like we got to settle this because you know the fca is here if we don't settle this like we're both gonna be in trouble i was actually pretty impressed with just how firm rom stood you know to 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 his brother knowing you know knowing full well like what's what could happen like you know rom's not a well i mean he is an idiot depending on who you ask but he's not you know you know he's a ferengi enough to know that you don't screw around with the fca and um i thought that was a pretty that was a pretty intense scene between him and and quark yeah i thought that uh for a one-off episode i think rom probably gets the most growth out of any of the characters here oh yeah this is a this is a i was actually very impressed with the acting too um because i i mean i was going to kind of save this for the the character section but just, just i guess just quickly like rom he sort of plays like like he played the sort of reluctant leader very well in the beginning especially and yeah, that scene between him and, and Quark was yeah really really intense. And yeah, Rom I think definitely sort of grows a lot in this episode. Back to the wharf thing. Uh, just to wrap that sort of B story up, he ends up deciding to move his quarters to the Defiant, which I thought was kind of a wharf thing to do because he is very much a solitary you know individual who likes peace and quiet. And I feel like he would get a lot of that on the Defiant. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we've talked about this before. The only downside is is that when it goes on a mission, I guess he just has nowhere to live, uh, especially if he's left on the station. <laughs> uh, I think it makes sense, and I guess it kind of sets up this whole arc that he's going to be kind of the lone wolf. He's, you know, the cast member that they brought in halfway through, and he's not really going to fit in 
um, straight away, like maybe some of the other characters that we've seen introduced in the past. So uh, from that perspective, I, I think I like it. And I, I think it, it does kind of lend itself to some interesting stuff in the future. Uh, I mean, maybe the super skeptical person in me would say that maybe they just didn't want to make another uh, set for Worf's uh, bedroom or what have you. So uh, using a, a bunk from the Defiant kind of kills two birds, one stone. But I like it as an idea, and uh, I have no real complaints about it, other than it is a little bit silly. It's kind of like, imagine if you were a teenager, right? And you were like, you know what, Mom and Dad? Like, you guys are like, you know on my case all the time. Like I'm going to live in the car, like in the parking lot, you know, <laughs> like I'm going to move all my stuff out there and live in the car. They'd be like, uh, okay. But then like, what about if I have to use the car to go to work? It's like, well, all my crap is going to be in the back of it. So, uh, you know, you'll have to drive it around too. Like it's a little silly. Yeah. From that perspective, it is kind of odd. Like what if the defiant takes off and he's not on it? Like, what's he going to do? Just like, Hey Miles, you mind if <laughs> yeah. I like crash on your couch for a couple of days? Well, a couple of weeks if they go into the back. wormhole. So I guess in terms of like the practicality, maybe it's not the most sense sensical thing to do, but it does. It's a very wharf thing to do, I would say. So next we get this. Uh, we get this scene in the bar where like Quark and Brunt are sort of like figuring out how they're going to solve this, and uh, the two Nausikins are playing. Playing darts, uh, and I say that in air quotes, by by throwing the darts at each other, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah. And uh, and so Brunt's like, Joel, we uh, we gotta we gotta do something. We gotta send a message." And um, but he doesn't want to, you know, rough up Rom directly because he doesn't want to turn him into like a martyr or anything. And so after a bit of like you know thinking out loud, they, he decides uh, to beat the snot out of Quark. Uh, so he, he, you know, he has the, his, his, uh, his goons just beat the snot out of him. And then, you know, we, we go to the infirmary and, and finally Quark and Rom, you know, Quark basically crumbles. He, he, uh, he, you know, he agrees to sort of do it kind of behind the scenes and like, not like all right at once. Uh, and, and, you know, Rom has to officially dissolve the union just to get Brunt and his, his goons off his back. Um, did, did you, were you surprised that Quark sort of gave in in the end? Yeah. Like to me, this is the thing that kind of ruins the episode. I was just saying, you know, just a little bit about like, what is this supposed to be? What are they supposed to be telling us? What are we supposed to be learning or, or what are we supposed to take away from this? This is the worst resolution they could have done. You know, the Union holding out long enough to have Quark realize that he was losing so much money that he should make a change would have shown that unions are a, you know, a useful thing and that strike action is something that can make a difference, right? Um, or the Union basically running out of money and Quark outlasting, maybe like those holodeck Quarks that he had set up, maybe become like, you know, <laughs> useful enough that, uh, you know, he... he he kind of outweights the union and we learn an important lesson about, you know, being in your lane or, or knowing when to fight or what have you. But to basically just turn it into goonery really just makes it seem like neither thing is effective. And that like, if something doesn't going your way or if you have problems at work or whatever, like really the best thing to do is to just meet up the guy in the parking lot, you know, beat the crap out of them. And, and, and muscle your way into whatever thing that you want. Like, that is a horrible, 
horrible resolution to an episode that I thought and I hoped was going to be kind of about the intricacies of, uh, you know, unions versus, uh, you know, corporations. But yeah, this this really left a sour taste in my mouth, actually. I, I really disliked the way that this concluded. Well, you know, when you got those Nausicans, you got to use them. <laughs> well, They're not just there for show. But do we, we don't even really get to see a lot of the beatdown either, though. No, just, you know, the swollen eye socket. And... Yeah, so there's two fights in this, neither of which are uh, shown. <laughs> we get to see. <laughs> you know, like. It's true. Yeah, I didn't think of that. Yeah, there's there's two big, uh, two big big brawls and uh, we didn't get to see them. i mean what a you know what else would have been kind of interesting matt did you ever watch the movie the irishman it was like uh, al pacino and uh, joe pesci and stuff you didn't watch that one no nope, i don't think i saw it that. was like a big netflix movie martin scorsese like maybe a couple years ago anyway um the movie is about jimmy hoffa and the unions of you know during their heyday basically and what the movie is, is that like essentially the union was run by like all these mobster guys. And any time that there was any, you know, any pushback from companies like these mobster guys would go in, kill your family, kill you. Uh, the next guy would come in. He wouldn't play ball. They kill him, too. Like that's basically what the movie's about. And it's all about unions in America in that time period. Uh, if they wanted to do this kind of strong muscle thing it would have been an interesting way to kind of flip reverse it where instead of the unions kind of being the, uh, you know, the muscle, the mob, whatever you want to call it, flip it around and Brunt comes in and he's using the, the muscle of the Nausicans to kind of rough up the union members in a, a total role reversal. Uh, I don't know that I like that they just rough up Quark and, and then he's forced to cave like that means he kind of loses out twice. Whereas I kind of think it would have been more interesting to be like, look at the Frankie are so evil, they're actually going to drop down to, uh, you know, the lowest level possible and actually just attack the unions physically. That's how desperate they don't want them to uh, to form. Well, the choice to rough up Quark was kind of odd because, like you say, you know, it would have it would have shown us what lengths the Frankie will go to to snuff out a union, right? Right. And I know, and he, and he even said that, like, well, I can't, I can't kill Rom or or rough up Rom because that's only gonna strengthen their position or their it will garner sympathy. But going after Quark doesn't. I, I mean, I know that the thinking was, well, it's his brother. If we rough up his brother, but it, but but it doesn't work because he's the one running the business. Yeah, that was kind of a weird one that didn't really make a lot of sense. But again, they need to resolve it somehow. So maybe that's just what they came up with. Yeah, and I guess what I'm saying is I just don't really like what they came up with. I don't know that they really sat down ahead of time and thought about what they wanted to say and what they wanted this episode to be about. It really just kind of ends up being about like they made a union and then they got it all resolved. I mean, there's nothing really stopping from Quark a week later from just, you know, renegotiating the, the contracts and they've already busted the union up. So I don't know. I just didn't like that aspect of it. Um, one thing I really do like is that Rom quits the bar because he kind of sees the other side of it and he sees himself as being more than just the bar hand. 
And so he joins the Bajoran station crew, which I, I think is just such a great character arc piece, right? This ends up being a really important aspect of that Rom character. So that part was really good and a nice part to end on. Yeah, I remember it was surprising at the time uh, when it happened, but I mean, that's the perfect place for him to go to become, you know, a repair technician, I think, diagnostic and repair technician. So yeah, at the time it was kind of surprising. I do remember thinking like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder why they did that. But it does end up working out nicely for him as the series continues on. And uh, it's kind of interesting that he ends up quitting after he he got, you know, the rest of the, the workers what they wanted. Yeah, I mean, I guess he just saw that he was more than just nothing like that, right? Like he stood up and actually won something for a change. So then he thought that maybe this would be the only thing that kind of doesn't really make sense is that, you know, he comes in, he's like, oh, yeah, now I'm working in the engineering department. And I don't think that we ever really mentioned that that was an interest or a hobby or anything. But I mean, whatever. I do like that he's on like the night shift. He's a junior crew member. <laughs> Yeah, and I also like that he be, sort of became like an obno- the obnoxious customer, like, like instantaneously, <laughs> instantly, you know. Now get me my snail juice. Yeah, that was good too. Let's move on to some character uh, items here. Uh, I guess the the first major thing is that like this is a uh, very much a Rom versus Quark episode, uh, and I don't know that we really get many of these if if any this might be the only one where we sort of get that brother versus brother dynamic and i mean this is really the first time we've seen rom sort of stand up to to his brother and uh how did you think that that sort of went over in this episode just thinking of like sort of the conflict between the two of them uh yeah i mean i feel like we've seen it in little bits and pieces for sure the brotherly angst or whatever it might be um, for me, Rom takes like about three huge leaps forward. And for me, Quark takes one big step back. I think that Quark really, we've seen him do dastardly things in the past. You know, he always does it with a little bit of a wink and a smile and then kind of writes the ship before the end of the episode. This time he's literally just beaten into having to change his ways and i don't think he really learns anything i think if anything he is uh lesser after this episode than the beginning and i I know that they had to dial him up a little bit in order to make it work but i think it just made him look bad in all seriousness so uh for me rom gets the big thumbs up and quark gets the big thumbs down yeah that's true in the end i i i I really like the scenes with the two of them together when they were sort of going back and forth and, and Rom was sort of asserting his uh, his his will and and starting to realize that, you know, he's not just someone to walk, that Quark can, can walk on anymore and, and began to assert himself a little bit more. Like you say, he, he takes a, quite a few steps forward in this episode, but I, I, I really like the scenes between the two of them. I thought they were pretty intense and, and I mean... I don't actually have a brother. Uh, I do have siblings, but I don't have any brothers. But I feel like it's, it's you know, that's very, very much sort of how it can be between two strong-willed brothers. Yeah, I don't have, I have two sisters as well. So I have brother-in-laws, but it's not really the same as like true brothers growing up, right? I believe this is where the producer sort of got the idea of, of Lita being a, a love interest for Ron, because I guess the, the two actors had pretty pretty good chemistry in this episode and they sort of foreshadowed it a little bit 
Um, do you think that she's like a pretty good match for uh, for Rom? It's always like she's out of his league, right? But I, I think that, I mean, this period of time, that was pretty common in sitcoms and television shows, right? The guy who's got the, the super hot wife. Uh, I think that they complement each other nicely. Uh, it's hard not to root for Rom just because, you know, you seem as such kind of a bumbling fool. So the fact that, you know, Lita kind of uh, loves him for it is something that I think is good. I also think that it's better to free up Julian for other stuff. Um, I don't know that Julian being linked to Lita and mar getting married or whatever would have been the right call, especially since Julian, I believe, is meant to be super, super young. And I, I think that him being more of the Riker womanizer character just works better anyways. Well, and if they hadn't broken up Lita and Julian, uh, how would like how would Nog have been had to sneak into her quarters to bring that <laughs> Exactly. How would that have ever happened? <laughs> they wouldn't have been able to use that gag in that that episode. It would have been a sh true true shame. Now, just one last thing about Rom. Uh, Max Grodenchik did not like the idea of Rom quitting his job at the bar like at the time. So when he first found out that that was how this episode was going to end. He was he, he really thought it was a bad idea, but we've already kind of talked about how it ended up being a pretty good place for him as the series continued. So, And this is not like the first time that uh, an actor was unhappy about the direction of their character, but it ended up working out in the end. I think I read that... Uh, Rene Aubergenois was not really thrilled that he was they were going to find his uh, his Odo's people so early on but then it ended up working out because they turned out to be the leaders of the Dominion this horrible horrible uh group of people and uh what was the other one? Oh, uh when Nog joined Starfleet uh Aaron Eisenberg I guess was didn't think it would would work out nicely but you know, Nog's progression from, we've talked about this on the podcast previously, his progression from, you know, sort of troubled child to upstanding Starfleet officer. I mean, it's a pretty incredible bit of character development over the series. So sometimes the writers know what they're doing. I was going to say, yeah, this is why actors shouldn't write television shows because, uh, you know, <laughs> they're always going to have a, such a skewed vision and they're probably not going to be able to kind of look at everything from the outside in. It's the whole forest for the trees scenario. So I like writers writing for actors, not the actors coming in and demanding this or that. I feel like there's so many more stories about, you know, actors demanding something be a certain way and they end up ruining it because it kills the overall flow or the overall narrative. I mean, you do hear about that occasionally. Again, we, we drew an episode with no Jake, so uh, credit to his agent for uh, being <laughs> in the main credits, uh, even though he was not in it. Uh, we haven't talked about Brunt. Um, I, the only thing I would say is that it's it's kind of disappointing that he's only really in it for the last 10, 15 minutes. We don't really see much of him. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to not lie and say, like, Brunt is my least favorite of the Jeffrey Coombs characters. I know that he's meant to be annoying and get under your skin and be bothersome, but he's annoying and bothersome and he gets under my skin. So I, <laughs> yeah, it's, he's very good at it, but it's just, yeah, I, I mean, I can only take him in small doses. He's kind of like the Nagus in the sense that like, you know, <laughs> 10 minutes or less is fine anymore and it's too much. 
I'll just, I think that's credit to the acting, which I think we both uh, agree. And I think we've even discussed on the podcast here that, you know, Jeffrey Coombs is uh, pretty skilled. And uh, we see that in Deep Space Nine with his myriad of uh, characters that he that he plays. Uh, on to some production stuff. Uh, this was an episode that particularly uh, hit home for Armin Shimmerman because and I didn't know this. Uh, this is actually kind of interesting. He, uh, he actually sits on the board of directors for the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, so so this, is, uh, this is an episode that I think would have certainly hit home for him being, uh, you know, on the board of directors of a, of a very significant uh, piece of, like, uh, you know, union in, uh, in Hollywood. Do you, think that's, do you think that sort of showed through, even though he was kind of playing someone who's on the other side? Uh, no, it didn't show through at all. I think that my biggest beef with this episode is that it didn't take a strong enough stand one way or the other. And for somebody who's on the side of the, the actors, I feel like, oh my goodness, the actors and the writers are, and the directors and the producers and everybody, they're always fighting and they're always striking. So... I kind of feel like they should have maybe put some more of that into this to to really beef it up, and make it a great episode. A lot of the cast and crew were sort of. I know that you might disagree with this, but they they all were sort of pleased with the serious nature of the message, even though it was kind of a episode that leaned a bit towards comedy. Lavar Burton actually had a quote, and he directed this, and we actually didn't really talk about that at all, but. Um, he said, uh, the execution of the idea was whimsical, but the situation was absolutely serious. It's serious drama, a power struggle between two brothers. I, I, I mean, I guess if you want to look at it as sort of the at the brother versus brother part of it, I would totally agree with that. You know, even though it was a little bit, there was a little bit of funniness and comedy to it. It was still a pretty serious uh, bit of drama at the core because you got these two brothers going head to head in a pretty, pretty serious uh, dispute. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I guess, you know what, the next time you're negotiating your contract, Matt, just get two huge guys and meet your uh, boss outside of his uh, place, beat the crap out of him, and then the police show up and say, you know what, LeVar Burton told me that this is the way to do it. I learned it on an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. <laughs> That's a perfectly uh, reasonable defense. In any I learned it from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, one quick thing that I thought was pretty funny, actually. The two Nausicans, I, I, this, I had no idea. They were actually played by professional dart players. Oh, really? For that, you know, for that scene where they're, they're chucking darts at each other. Huh, I guess you need to have a professional dart player in order to hit somebody like in the side of the arm or whatever. Or, or in the middle of the chest. You know what's <laughs> from, kind of funny? From five feet away. Yeah, you know what's funny, Matt, is that I actually just recently bought a dartboard and put it in my basement, and I've been, like, super into darts, and I've even been watching, like, professional games on uh, YouTube and stuff like that, and uh, darts is a crazy sport. People go completely nuttered for it, and it draws huge crowds, and it's, like, a huge, massive party. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not against dart players getting a little uh, side side hustle here on the go. I never would have known, but I guess they did it because they wanted the like throwing motion to be, to be convincing. Real. Yeah, that's cool. It worked. It worked. They looked. They didn't look like they. Uh, they. They looked like they knew what they were doing, playing darts Nausicaan style. And one last thing. Uh, so, <laughs> this this was also kind of funny. Uh, so I guess in every episode, whenever they have sort of weird terminology, there's like a pronunciation guide in the script to kind of help the actors to pronounce correctly. And uh, so in this episode, uh, Cole Meany talks about uh, 
Boru, which I think was one of the names of one of his ancestors. And then there was uh, the word Klontarf, which I think he was a battle. And so, so apparently in the uh, pronunciation guide for those two words, it just said, ask Colm. <laughs> That's funny. So, so if you had trouble with those two words, just go ask Colm Meany. He'll, he'll tell you how to pronounce it, which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah, it's pretty good. All right. Uh, were there any memorable scenes or, or quotes that stuck out to you in this episode? Uh, I mean, I guess I, as much as I ripped on it, I, I do kind of like that dock his pay line from the very beginning. Uh, when Rom says, we're going to form a union, it was literally like out of an 80s uh, sitcom, which I kind of liked. All right. Um, I love that scene in the infirmary with Bashir and Odo, or uh, Bashir, O'Brien, and Rom, where Bra- O'Brien's like, talking about his ancestor and all this stuff and how great he was and you know how how tough he was as a union man and all this and that and then just goes completely south when he says they 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 drug him out of the allegheny river with 32 bullets in him (laughs) i thought that was pretty funny i mean how can you want to go form a union after you know brian talks up this guy and then how he was brutally shot and murdered and left for dead in the river yeah, Way to encourage him there, Miles. Good, good job. All right, uh, give me your final thoughts, Andrew, and uh, let's. Uh, this week, we'll give, you can give me a rating out of five Nausicaan enforcers. I remember this being way worse. So, uh, in my mind's eye, I remember this being silly, goofy, uh, Ferengi nonsense that uh, didn't really have a main point, and it was kind of more of a joke episode. Um, it wasn't that the first half of this is really, really, really good. The second half, something happens that deep space nine never really does. And I never really say, so, um, they pulled their punch, you know, they had an opportunity really here to, to tell us something, to show us something, to indicate the power of, uh, you know, humanity uniting together against corporate America or, you know, they could have told us something about Ferengi and, you know, the the evils of, of, of capitalism. And they kind of just did neither. And so I don't love the message of this. I don't really feel like there is one. I think the second half really falls apart. And I've worked in unions. I've worked in non-unions. There's lots of things they could have touched on here. There's lots of things that it could have been. Uh, and I just didn't feel like we got any of it. So I'm going to go with two out of five Nausicaan enforcers. Uh, maybe two out of five dart-throwing Nausicaan enforcers. Yes, we love the the dart-throwing uh, Nausicaans. Uh, for me, this uh, I, I, I was trying to sum it up in like one sentence, and I feel like this is just kind of like a run-of-the-mill Deep Space Nine episode. It wasn't really bad. Um, it was good. The, the whole Wharf thing was kind of not that interesting, um, but I felt like the main story was was pretty engaging, pretty interesting. There were some good scenes between Rom and Quark, the the sort of brotherly battle that was going on. I thought was was pretty good. the The message did kind of fall apart because they did make that strange choice to rough up Quark and force him to to give up, give into the the, the demands of Rom and the Union. So that was a little bit strange and like you say the message does kind of get lost in the end because they you know the Ferengi do Ferengi things and it doesn't really make sense to us in our sort of real contemporary world so um I'm gonna give it three 
Noskin Enforcers out of five. I mean, it's it's a it's a good episode, but it's not spectacular, and and but it wasn't bad either. I believe I hear the red alert siren, which means we're uh, drawing near the end of our uh, our podcast here, which of course means it's time for us to draw a new episode from the. Uh, the top hat of episodes that we will review in our next podcast. Andrew, what do you say? Give me a good episode of Star Trek. It's kind of one of those strange things where we've we've had some good episodes, we've had some good talks and some good chats and stuff, but yeah, give me a classic, something easy that I can remember so that uh, I can kind of get back into the seasonal race because I feel like you're kind of pulling ahead over here. Well, I think you have uh, got your wish here, Andrew. I think you are going to remember this one. Um, it's a pretty, uh, I think it's a pretty well-known episode. So it's from the original series. Uh, it's from the first season. It's episode four. And the title is The Naked Time. So while Andrew uh, gathers his thoughts, don't forget to check us out on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram. We uh, have a Facebook group. All that good stuff. Andrew is furiously writing. All right, I'm just going to put 60 seconds on the clock here, as we always do. And Andrew is ready to go, I think. Uh, yeah, I feel like I'm about as ready as I'm going to be. All right, well, in that case, I will start your time now. All right, this is very fitting because it's a virus episode from the original series that then spawned a sequel episode in Star Trek The Next Generation called The Naked Now, which I believe was also in season one. So in this episode, it's kind of like a slow burn episode where a virus infects the Enterprise and people start getting kind of sick and acting straightly strange. Um, they try to invoke like quarantines. They also have some episodes where like they wear the big like hazmat suits which i think we might have already seen in past uh, tos episodes as well this is the famous episode where the virus makes you kind of go crazy and your inhibitions are thrown to the wind it gives us that classic sulu shirtless fencing shot which we'll have to dig up some good memes after we've um, reviewed it um, i believe that spock is generally unaffected or he's one who like gets the suits early enough and so he eventually kind of uh, works towards getting it remedied, although there are some people who are uh, affected and die. And that's one minute. Uh, yeah, I think you're uh, definitely close, if not spot on. Yeah, this is definitely the, uh, the famous uh, act like you're drunk uh, episode of the original series after they get infected with a virus. And yeah, that's, this is the classic Sulu shirtless with the fencing uh, what do they call those? Isn't there like a special fencing name for those? Foil. 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 Spire. Fencing foil. foil. Yeah, the fencing foil. So this will be a this this will be a good one to review. I think this is uh, definitely uh, one of the classic sort of original series episodes, and we haven't really had a we haven't really had a classic original. We've had a, we've had a number of ordinary original series episodes, but this one is definitely a, a bit of a classic. Yeah, I, I have to admit that I was a little surprised at how early this episode was, like uh, the fourth episode of uh, the show in general was, is a bit of a surprise. So um, it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, uh, how, how close they are to uh, fine form that early on into the original series run. So I'm pretty excited to look forward to this one. Um, I'm always intrigued to go back to the 60s and check out 
a little original series because I haven't seen a lot of it. So uh, I'm on board for that. And uh, you can be on board with us in about two weeks time when we come back and review the naked time not to be confused with the naked now yes make sure you watch the correct episode <laughs> yes it's the original series one yeah thanks for joining us as always and uh, we look forward to returning in two weeks and talk some original series the naked now bye-bye everybody this show is brought to you by hollow sweet media Computer. List other available Holosuite media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Her First Trek, a Star Trek review podcast. I don't know what Picard is doing between the Stargazer and the Enterprise D. So how do you go from abandoning a ship to getting given the flagship? But <laughs> ten years passes. <laughs> yeah, he lost the other one. So but here's a really special one. And here's the best part. We're going to put families and children on it. Yeah. Because we know that you're so good at taking care of starships. Yeah. I don't know how he got the ship and what was he doing in the time in between. I don't think he had another command before the Enterprise I don't D. Know. I don't know. I'm sure someone will let me know. We have quite a few TNG fans who listen to the show, actually, so maybe they'll tell me. But no spoilers, guys. No spoilers. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, The Voyages, a Star Trek original, animated, and Kelvin Films podcast. Full honesty, I did find that the scene was seemingly long when they were driving with him and, and Scotty to get to the Enterprise when they were in their little capsule. I felt that that was a very long scene, driving around the whole Enterprise. But find yourself someone in life that looks at you the way Kirk looked at the Enterprise. I mean, that was a beautiful moment. And I absolutely adored when Spock came back onto the Enterprise. Just how everybody on the bridge, like Yuhura and Chekhov and everybody, they just kind of rallied around him. And it was a really warming moment just to see that original core group of people just celebrate him and happy to see him. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.